As Eric said, this is our final sermon in our Ephesians series, 21 sermons total, starting last September. I always get a little moody towards the end of a sermon series because it's kind of like spending time with a good friend has kind of come to an end. You know, we're going we're gonna to move on to something wonderful. It's terrific, but there just is a little bit of a, gosh, we've been in Ephesians and now, I, now I'm going to leave the intense study of that, that particular letter that's written to that particular church. And, uh, and so I, it's, uh, it's a little funny. It's just, uh, I think, wow, I, just, I love what the, the book of Ephesians has done in our hearts. And I'm praying that it will work, work in our churches, that in our church, that we would see the church highly as we ought, because we have been shown the church highly by Paul as God sees it. You'll remember it was on Paul's third missionary journey that Paul spent three years in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor or now Turkey. Uh, it's, it's a major city. It's a significant city, a Roman city, a capital city. It's a port city and, a, and an intersection of roads of commerce. It's an important city. It's, it's one of the eighth wonders of the world. Ancient world is there. It's the, the Temple of Artemis. It's a significant city founded on this pagan goddess who... The people in Ephesus claimed, the worshipers of Artemis claimed, had all power. And so you can understand why Paul writes a lot about the power of God to the church in Ephesus so that they would understand which God actually has all power. Paul preached the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles, and God built his church in local churches in and around the city of Ephesus. You may remember there was a a huge riot in the third year that Paul was there, led by the worshipers of the goddess of Artemis, or or even the artisans. The the economic viability of the city was was tied into this worship of of Artemis, and uh, they they made little silver trinkets, little, little idols that they could carry around, and they got all up in an uproar because Paul's preaching Christ, and it's infringing on their business because people are coming to saving faith in Christ. And so Paul, Paul was forced out of town. He was run out of town on a rail, so to speak. And he went on to Macedonia to preach the gospel there. Now, as we read the letter, Paul's letter, it's six or seven years after Paul had been in Ephesus. And he's under arrest. And he's awaiting trial in Rome. And as he writes this glorious letter, uh, it's to the church around 61, 62 AD. And why is Paul writing? Well, in my introductory sermon, I'm sure you remember it clearly, sermon number one out of 21, about six months ago, you probably remember these words. I quoted Clinton Arnold. He's a, he's a commentary, a, the, a theologian and a commentary writer who wrote, Paul is struggling with all of his might to see the lives of his converts transformed by the power of the gospel and no longer conforming to the trends of secular culture. So let me read that one more time. Paul is struggling with all of his might to see the lives of his converts transformed by the power of the gospel and no longer conforming to the trends of secular culture. I love that quote because that's why Ephesians is so relevant to us today. We, as individual believers, and collectively, as Christ Fellowship Church, need to stop conforming to the trends of secular culture and be transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stop thinking in therapeutic categories and instead think in biblical categories. We need to stop promoting our earthly wills and well-being and instead promote the eternal purpose of God and salvation in Christ. We need to stop thinking only of ourselves and instead think highly of the church. It's not me, me, me. It's us, us, us. We're just aiming too low. When God tells us to aim high. And to do that, we must understand our new oneness in Christ. We need to aim for Christ. If you want to follow along on your sermon outline, you'll see this rather long theme, but it has to wrap up a whole book, right? As a result of God's eternal plan and glorious purpose, all who are united to Christ by faith are united to one another as fellow saints and members of the household of God. As such, we must walk in a manner worthy of Christ, maintaining the unity of the local church by living new lives in love, light, and wisdom, thus standing firm against the devil. And all this to the praise of his glorious grace. Let me read our 
final section to this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Often, Paul seems 10 feet tall to us. Christ's hand-picked apostle to the Gentiles, his boldness in proclaiming the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike, he seems fearless to us. The many hardships and persecutions he endured, he seems invincible to us. As a result, we can miss the hints of Paul's pastoral heart and his real love and affection for people. The hints are here in Scripture. They're, just, they're kind of like a watermark on the back of the whole page. He's there the whole time. I want to read a few verses from 1 Thessalonians in which Paul recounts his time with the believers in Thessalonica because it's probably a common description of Paul in his time of ministry with, with all of the churches, including the church at Ephesus. If you want to read along, you can. I'm looking at 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 13. They provide a little bit of a, a painting of Paul ministering in a church in a city. He says to them, For you, selves, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Paul was in Ephesus far longer than he was in Thessalonica. He surely knew and discipled many men, women, and children. He had meaningful affectionate relationships with whole families. He suffered for them. He endured conflict for them so that they would hear the gospel and believe in Christ. He was both mother and father to them. He says he was gentle among them like a nursing mother, affectionate towards them, sharing the gospel, but also sharing themselves. He's Paul and his, his cadre, his group of ministers traveling with him. That they're like children to him, and he was like a father to them, exhorting and encouraging and charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so they love Paul. Traveling from Macedonia to Jerusalem, Paul was in a hurry, so he passed by Ephesus. Why? Because there was no way for him to say <clears throat> a quick hello to so many people whom he loved. Or for them to be able to say hello to him. So what he did was, he stopped in Miletus and called just the elders of the church to come and meet him. And after speaking with them, he could barely break away from them. Acts 10.36 reads, And when he had said these things to the elders, he, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him 
being sorrowful most of all of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Paul loves the church. And the church loves Paul. And Paul is in prison in Rome and they want to know how he's doing. Some critics of Paul say he doesn't care about these people because he doesn't have any, any closing words towards them. You know, in many of his closing, he says, there's final greetings. Well, you know, so-and-so's here and so-and-so's here. They say, hey, uh, be sure to say hey to, you know, those folk over in the church. But it's obvious in the text that Paul does much better than a few closing words at the end of his letter. He sends Tychicus, who's going to tell them everything. They can even ask him questions and interact. They want to know how Paul's doing, and they're going to find out. He's going to let them know. He's going to tell them all that's happening with his ministry there. Many great theologians have noted that the church marches forward through history due to the faithful labors of countless men, women, and children whose names we'll never know. Devoted Christians like Tychicus. Paul mentions him a few times in his letters, he's mentioned by Luke and Acts, and then he's mentioned in Colossians and 2 Timothy and Titus. Tychicus is from Asia, so that area of Turkey, uh, which includes the area of Ephesus, he may be a hometown boy. And he's part of Paul's ministry team, serving in various capacities as needed. Tychicus will deliver this letter to the churches in and around Ephesus, along with Paul's letter to the Colossians, and Paul's letter to a man named Philemon. Think about being a messenger in those days. You know, the FedEx truck pulled up outside and dropped off a box you know, of books. Tychicus has to walk, or maybe occasionally ride a mule, or maybe occasionally sail by ship. He, he has to, you know, he could be waylaid by robbers or thieves or ne'er-do-wells. He could have things stolen from him. I mean, he's got to be a can-do guy just to be a messenger. But he's far more than just a messenger to Paul, although he is a successful messenger. He's a gospel minister in his own right. Many speculate that Tychicus may have written this letter to the church in Ephesus as Paul dictated it to him. May have been his scribe. At any rate, he's familiar with the contents of the letter and he's able to expound on them. Paul has commissioned Tychicus not only to deliver the letter, but to encourage the hearts of the believers. Isn't that interesting? To encourage the hearts of the believers. You know, first, he would give them his first-hand account all about Paul and his ministry in Rome, how he's holding up in prison, how though Paul is bound, the gospel's not bound, how they don't need to be ashamed of Paul because he's in prison for the gospel. They don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. And he would comfort them with the knowledge that Paul is still Christ's faithful ambassador, even though he's in chains. And then, he would encourage them by reading the letter. It was probably Tychicus who stood before the congregation and first read the letter to them out loud. And they, like us, might have had a few questions. Might have wanted a little more explanation, wanting to know how this applies to them. What questions might they have had? What clarification would they have asked for? What would Tychicus emphasize in order to put gospel courage in their hearts? Well, I can imagine three things. I can imagine three lines or themes that run throughout Paul's letter that could use a little additional connecting to help them to be better understood. So that we who are in Christ would have an increasing courage in our hearts today. We know the eternal plan and purpose of God. That's the first thing. This is a theme that runs through the letter, and I think we can connect it if we would look at it all at one time. See, we don't have to wonder, brothers and sisters, what the purpose of God is. What was a mystery has now been made known to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1, or excuse me, 7 through 10. In him, that's Christ the beloved, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Here comes the wisdom. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, this is God the Father, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And what is it? It's to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, everything is about Christ. Everything in the whole cosmos is about Christ. God set forth his one plan and his eternal purpose in Christ. And his plan, that plan, will culminate in all things being summed up under Christ. And how's that going to happen? And what will that look like? Well, look at chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. It looks like this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? It's going to happen by the power of God. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, it's going to come about by the power of God. And then look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him his head, Christ his head, over all things to the church, which is Christ's body. Christ's body, which he fills, which only makes sense. The fullness of him who fills all in all. God will accomplish his great will and purpose by his great power and might. Christ will be exalted above all power and all other power will become a footstool to him. And Jesus is the one who fills all in all. What is that a reference to? What is that a reference to? How is it that filling all in all is connected to all things being summed up in Christ and the eternal plan and purpose of God. Adam and Eve. Wow, we had we to look back there. Yeah, just think for a minute. Adam and Eve were to be productive and fill the earth with their children who would then worship God and fill the earth with their children. They worship God and in that way, by populating the entire earth with devoted worshipers, the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. Do you see? But Adam sinned against God, and the world fell into darkness. And so now, how is the whole earth going to be filled with worshipers and the glory of God? By the gospel of Jesus Christ. By his sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection. By faith in Jesus Christ, sinners now will be born. Sinners will be born again in Christ. They, the church, will grow and worship God in this way, fill the whole earth with his glory. That's how. It's the church that displays the glory of God through Christ's redeeming work. That's the first part of the mystery that Paul has revealed. Here's the second part. Gentiles are also now saved. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises of Christ through the gospel. Yahweh is not only the God of the Jews, but God over all of his creation. And Christ, who is over all, accomplished the redemption of all God's elect through his blood, Jew and Gentile. Look at, look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made by in the flesh by hands, remember that they, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world, but now in Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. God's wrath was satisfied by the sacrifice of his sinless Son, we are saved by a spiritual transaction. On the cross, Christ took our sins upon himself. 
That's a spiritual thing that happened. We didn't see it. We didn't pull sins out of ourselves and hand them to him. It's a spiritual transaction. Christ took our sins upon himself, and in our place, he suffered God's just wrath on our sins upon himself on the cross. At the same time, Christ gave us his righteousness so that Christ himself is our peace. And God is both the just, because he didn't let sins go unpunished, and he is the justifier, because God the Son took that punishment for those sins to justify us. It is the grace and mercy of God that we would come under the authority of Christ as his people to be exalted rather than as his enemies to be crushed under his feet. And God has a spiritual purpose for his church and his eternal plan, which should grab our attention. You, you you happy few gathered here, God has a plan and a purpose for you as a church. That should grab your attention. And it's no surprise that God's purpose for his church is wrapped up with Christ's calling of Paul to be his apostle. Look at this in in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What was concealed in the old covenant is being realized or being revealed in the new covenant. God's manifold wisdom, which is the same as his plan and purpose to set everything forth in Christ, is being realized, it is coming true, and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, those who have set themselves against God, can see evidence of it. They can see God's unfolding plan in the fruit of Jesus' sacrifice for Gentile sinners. And what's the evidence? The church. It's the church. Dead sinners being made alive in Christ and Jews and Gentiles being brought near in Christ. It's incontrovertible proof that God's plan and purpose are succeeding. Those in the spirit realm can see that it is true. And we in the church know that it's true, Paul says, because we have confident access to God through faith in Christ who has brought us near, which is the bold outworking of God's very wise and eternal plan. Which is to fill the earth with his glory, filling the earth with his worshiping people, the church, which is the true display of his glory. our hearts should be encouraged to know the eternal plan and purpose of God for his church. He hasn't left us in the dark. He's brought us in on it. It has to become our spiritual plan and purpose. This is why he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chapter one, and trained us in spiritual warfare, all the way at chapter six. The church operates in two realms. Did you know that? We're operating in two realms, one seen, one unseen, the earthly realm and the spirit realm. But we operate the same way in both. We do the same thing. And so the church is operative in the earthly realm and in the spirit realm as believers in Christ. Here's the second theme we need to grasp completely. When Paul says that we are in Christ, he's talking about believers being united with Christ by faith. It is this union with Christ. We know the plan of God, and we are the body of Christ. So much so that Paul says he has one more mystery to reveal in his instructions to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember this? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. He says he's talking to husbands. He addresses them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present without the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever created his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery that is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. While we're trying to wrap our minds around Paul's simple commands for wives to respect their husbands and husbands to nourish their wives, both of which require self-sacrifice, Paul is emphasizing the profoundness of our oneness in Christ. That's incredibly profound. We are the church, the body of Christ. He cherishes and nourishes us as he would his own body. He's cleansing us of our sin and sanctifying us with his righteousness so that we would become holy in him. Which takes us back to the plan and purpose of God, doesn't it? In chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's our end purpose, to be holy and blameless before him. That all of us together become one new man in Christ. Look again at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But now, having been made alive, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One new man. Through his sacrifice on the cross for his bride, Jesus has reconciled us to God and to one another. And in doing so, he's recreated us into one new man in himself. We can say that the church and Christ are one. We can say that we and Christ are one. In chapter 4, Paul instructs us in the ways of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance so that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we are one body in Christ with one Father who's over all and through all and in all. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. And we're to function like one healthy, growing body. We are the body. Christ is the head. And these are Paul's instructions for us in, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the head, the source of our equipping. And the church is growing up in every way to be like Christ. And so to that end, Paul says that we are being filled by our triune God. We're being filled by our triune God. In Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, God has given us Christ who is the head over all things to the church's body, and we are filled with his fullness. We read that. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul prays that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he adds this, that God, will be a, that God is able to fill us far more abundantly than we can even imagine. Did you ever imagine being filled by God at all? Did you ever imagine your church would be filled by God at all? Paul says that we are, and that he's able to do that. He's able to do that abundantly beyond what we can imagine. He also says that, that God's power, God, 
that God's power in doing so is already at work in us, the church. It's already happening. And that God is willing to do it for his glory in the church. So he's able and he's willing. And he's bringing it out because it's the plan and purpose of God that he would fill all in all. It's his plan for us in Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God as we make melody to the Lord in our hearts, as we give thanks to him always for everything, and as we live in his prescribed roles in the family. We know the will of God for us. And we know that we are the body of Christ. And we know that we are to grow in the fullness of Christ. And that's the third theme that I think we need to draw on together. Let's, let's pull this all together. Paul's teaching about our growing and our walking and our fighting in Christ. We can grow and we can walk and we can fight in Christ. I think we can draw a straight line through the letter of Ephesians connecting Paul's instructions to grow in Christ, his instructions to walk in a manner worthy, and his instructions to put on the whole armor of God. Meaning, they are all very much the same thing looked at from different ways. And it's the corporate church that's in view. It's the corporate church that's in view. We as individuals need to grow and walk and fight so that the corporate church fulfills God's call and Christ's mission. I want to just give you a heads up. I'm, I'm looking at three categories here as we go through growing, walking, and fighting. They are the who, the what, and the why of the church. Growing into who we are, what we do is walk, why we're doing it is fighting because that's God's plan. Who, grow, that's our character, the formation of our character, followed by the outworking of our behavior as we walk, and then that we should persevere in Christ. You're going to hear those three categories as we walk through. So we're talking first about growing. Having been made alive in Christ and brought together as the body of Christ, it makes total sense then that we should grow in Christ, doesn't it? In chapter 4, Paul draws on the image of Jesus, the Messiah, as the divine warrior king from Psalm 68, who, ascending on high, leading a host of captives with him, gives gifts to his people. Jesus has given the church gifts, like the apostles and evangelists, shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for this reason. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We don't want to be immature children in Christ. We want to grow in maturity in Christ. And so this is both character development, becoming like Christ, and it is relational development, knowing Christ himself. This is relational language. We know Christ. In chapter 1, Paul prayed that we would know Christ. And he prayed in chapter 3 that Christ would dwell in our hearts. That we would be consumed by a sincere love for Christ. After all, we have a bridegroom who loves us and cherishes us and gave himself up for us, his bride, the church. Now, I, I just mixed metaphors, but that's okay. Paul mixes metaphors all the time. So it's God's plan and the Spirit's sanctifying work that we who are in Christ would grow to be like Christ. We're to grow together in humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And in Christ, we have been given unity and peace. He has given it to the church. The church begins with that. So we're to walk in the unity of the Spirit. And we're to walk in the bond of peace as one body, building itself up, exercising love. And that's heart work, isn't it? That's us committing ourselves to Christ and to one another. This is one of those moments where you, you look around the room. Or maybe you don't. Wait, what? That's right. 
when we commit ourselves to Christ, we commit ourselves to Christ's church. <clears throat> Growing points to the who of the church. We grow in character, which leads Paul to the what of the church, our behavior and our walk. Paul tells us to walk in love, light, and wisdom. People who are in Christ walk as Christ walked. We once walked as the Gentiles walk in the futility and darkness and hardness of heart. That was when we were spiritually dead in sins and transgressions. But having been made spiritually alive in Christ, that old self is dead. So we put off the old self, we put off the old sinful walk, and now we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Chapter 4, verse 24. You see, because the new self is who we are in Christ. Now, we are imitators of God. And so we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We put off falsehood and anger and stealing and harmful speech and we put on helpful and encouraging speech. We put on hard work and generosity. We put on kindness, tenderness, and forbearance. And in these ways, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but live in accordance with the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us and who has sealed us for the day of redemption. See, once we were children of darkness, now we walk in the light, as children of light, chapter 5, verse 8. And so we put off the unfruitful works of darkness, sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness. Instead, we put on the fruit of light, all that is good, right, and true. For this is pleasing to the Lord. It's worthy walking. And we walk in wisdom, which requires careful introspection. Paul says, look carefully then. Pay attention. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to 17. And then Paul makes this surprising promise. I think it's surprising. Were you surprised? That we would be filled with the Spirit when we walk in these three wise ways. First, when we walk together, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, we'll be filled with the Spirit. Second, give thanks always for everything to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ will be filled by the Spirit. And third, that we would submit to one another in these three ways, that wives would respect their husbands and husbands would love, nourish, and cherish their wives, that children would honor their parents and parents would nourish their children, and that we would all respect rightful authority wherever it's found in society, in the workplace, in the classroom, in the church. And we do this in obedience to and out of reverence for Christ. That's our motivation. Because it's all about Christ. Now, the whole church and every member therein is growing into the character of Christ, who we are to be in Christ, and walking, how the church ought to walk in Christ, what we are able to be and do in Christ to, to, to walk like in love and light and wisdom. And then we receive Paul's instructions as to why. Why? The why is for the church to persevere in the fight, to succeed in the battle plan and eternal purpose that God to bring everything in the earthly realm and in the spiritual realm under the reign and rule of Christ. And so he says, be strong. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord Jesus and in the strength of his might. It's so clear, and yet we muddle it so magnificently. This is a command to total dependence on Christ. Just as we grow in Christ, just as we walk in Christ, we're to be strong in Christ. 
So how does that work? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Whose armor is it? It looks like it's God's armor. And then Paul goes on to describe what the whole armor of God consists of. And in my observation and in my experience, this is where Christians tend to get off track. First, we think we can take the armor of God and make it our armor. No, it's Christ's armor. Before and after we put it on, it's Christ's armor. We are strong in Christ and the strength of Christ's might only in his armor. That's verse 10. Paul is not commissioning us to take up our armor. He is calling us to complete an utter dependence on Christ's armor. Second, we're distracted by the individual pieces of armor and fail to see the whole armor. I think the most important word for us today is whole. The whole armor. Paul is instructing us to put on one whole armor. And then to convince us that this is the very armor that we need in order to stand against the forces of darkness, he describes it in six powerful ways. It's like the way Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. He says that the one fruit of the Spirit consists of eight wonderful characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are not meant to separate the one fruit into eight fruits. It's one fruit. We're not meant to separate that any more than we can separate the colors of a rainbow. If you separate the colors of a rainbow, it's no longer a rainbow. Now, we can distinguish the colors of a rainbow. We can see red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. But if we separate them from one another, we no longer have a rainbow. We just have each individual color. We can distinguish joy from peace and gentleness from self-control, but the glory is that they're all eight aspects gathered up into one fruit of the Spirit. That's the glory. In the same way, we're not to separate the six pieces of the whole armor of God. The glory of the armor of God is that all of these six attributes are in this one armor. We're not to put them on one by one, trying to reassemble them on our own bodies. Paul is distinguishing truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word, but he's not separating them. They, all together, make up one whole armor of God, which is what makes it so powerful. They're all there. Do not be distracted by visions of a Roman centurion wearing his armor. Do not be distracted by what the belt does and what the breastplate covers and what a shield is made of. This is the armor of God. As it has been described to us in the Old Testament. That's where Paul's mind is. And the person who wears this armor is the promised Messiah. Do you know who he is? Somebody say yes. Anybody? Thank you. Okay, good. And he, this Messiah, is described as God's warrior king who's mighty in battle, who fights for and preserves his people and wins the great victory. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. He shall be girded with righteousness around the waist and bound with truth around the sides. Isaiah 11, 4 and 5. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. He put on righteousness and a blush plate and a helmet of salvation on his head, Isaiah 59, 17. Psalm 35, 1, 3 says of him, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me, take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help, draw spear and javelin against my pursuers, say to my soul, I am your salvation. So the psalmist describes him. 
Who is the Messiah? Who is this divine warrior? He is Jesus Christ. Whose armor is Paul describing in Ephesians chapter 6? It is the whole armor of God worn by our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's his armor, which is brilliant, displaying the wisdom of God, because if we grow in Christ, and if we put on the one new man in Christ, how do we put on the whole armor of God? We put on the whole armor of God when we put on Christ. You who are in Christ, put Christ on. When the church puts on Christ, she will stand against the schemes of the devil. There's not some new way that you have to go out and learn. If you are growing in the character of Christ, and if you're a believer, you are. And if you're walking, in the unity and the love and the light and the wisdom of Christ, and if you're a believer in the church, you are. Then you put on the armor of Christ by simply being in Christ because he gives it to us. In Christ, you have this. You have what you need to grow. You have what you need to walk in. And you have that which protects you from the schemes of the devil in Christ. You don't have to go find some new way. Just be in Christ. Trust in him 100%. Depend on him completely for his protection that comes from his armor. Do you see the church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians? She is united in the peace of Christ. She is walking in the love, light, and wisdom of Christ. She is praying and proclaiming the gospel and persevering in the day of evil in the strength of Christ. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she glorious? God thinks so. Now can you see how it is that God would consider the church, the saints, all believers in Christ, even us, to be his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not because we've done it, but because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the eternal plan and purpose of God that we would walk in it. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. I think that's how to encourage the hearts of believers in the church. Paul finishes with a benediction. In verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at that, we, we can go back to chapter 1 and Paul's greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got the same thing in mind throughout the letter. The peace of Christ comes by faith in Christ. Do you know this peace? Dear friend, do you know this peace? Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace through the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives your sins? Because if you don't have the forgiveness of sins, you don't have actual peace. The peace that he brings is peace with God. And it comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. He says, love with faith. Love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. Love and faith always seem to be together in the Bible. That we love as we've been loved is a Christian understanding. Do you know the love of God? Do you know the love of God? 
Has he loved you in this way? That he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for you so that you would not perish, but instead that you would have eternal life. Do you know him in that way? Do you know this saving love of God? Because when you have the love of God within you, you love others with the love of God. And so that's why we love the brethren, those for whom Christ has died. And it comes by faith. Trust in Christ. Rely on Christ. Depend on Christ. And know the love of God by knowing God himself. In verse 24, well, in verse 23, we see everything's about Christ. And in verse 24, we see everything's for the church. Grace be with you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. God has given us by his grace his spirit, hope of eternity, power to persevere. He's given us all of these things and a purpose in his plan. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. And he has given us a love that is incorruptible, that is immortal, that we might love him back. Do we love perfectly? No. But is our love going to be a lasting love? If you're in Christ, it is. It's a lasting love. For God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul's benediction takes us back to his beginning admonition in chapter 1, verse 3. Having seen and read and studied all these things, surely we will do this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your electing love. Thank you for your transforming love. Thanking for your, thank you for your powerful love and for your keeping love. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and we ask that you would help us to live in him to be your people, that we would be those who pray and share the gospel, all to the praise of your glory and grace. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.